0: Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Black Pearl Books, an independent, family-run bookstore in Austin, Texas. Black Pearl is here to serve multicultural, multi-generational, socioeconomic communities and built to promote diversity, inclusion, and representation. Drop by or shop online at blackpearlbooks.store. And we're brought to you in part by Literary Youngstown. A literary community proud to support beginning and experienced writers who seek to hone their craft, foster understanding, and share and publish their creative work. Read, write, and tell your story at lityoungstown.org. Have you ever been to therapy? This is a podcast, so you can answer, but I probably can't hear you. If so, how was it? And if not, why not? Here on Wild Precious Life, we do our best to talk honestly about mental health challenges and opportunities. But a lot of us did not grow up in homes where we spoke transparently about our emotional needs. My mom's Italian and my dad was Irish. With my mom's people, if you were upset, they gave you something to eat. Spaghetti. Or a meatball. On my dad's side of the family, if you seemed unhappy, maybe they'd offer you a drink. Beer. Or a whiskey sour. However, if you've ever suffered from anxiety or depression or sleep deprivation or grief, well, you probably need something more than just food and a drink. Our guest today has made it her mission to help make therapy accessible, permissible, and safe for everyone. Dr. Ebony Butler is passionate about helping women survivors thrive in trauma recovery. She also specializes in guiding women to develop skills to increase their effectiveness in interpersonal interactions, including communication and asking for and getting what they need. Dr. Ebony is specifically interested in issues that impact marginalized communities, including minority women and LGBTQ individuals. Dr. Ebony uses her training and expertise in the roles of psychologist and food relationship and mindset strategist. Dr. Ebony, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you, Anne-Marie, for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm just jazzed to talk to you. I know you from Instagram and as a licensed psychologist and a food relationship strategist and recently a business consultant, I I feel like I've watched all your videos, which is probably not possible, but I'm just a big fan of seeing you out there doing your great work in the world. But I realize not all of our listeners are going to be familiar with the wonderful awesomeness that is you. So would you mind by just
1: telling us your story? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm excited. Hey, (laughs) y'all. So I'm a psychologist, and I actually got into this work, honestly. You know how they ask you the question when you're young, what do you want to be when you grow up? knew that I wanted to be in the medical field in some way, but I didn't know quite what that was going to be like. So I remember walking into a high school psychology class one day and my psychology teacher was like, hey, Dr. Burrell, which is my maiden name. And I said, he said, Dr. right?" I said, okay. So that was the first seed that was planted that I was ever going to be a psychologist. And I said, okay, I'm going to take this challenge because I'm competitive and we're going to make it happen. So I majored Uh in psychology, got my master's in clinical psych, and then got my doctorate in counseling psych. And everything just kind of morphed from that path.
0: So if this person had said, hey, Fire Chief Ebony, then you would have, do you think that, I mean, was there a part of you that always knew that you wanted to heal and treat people? Or could this have been Hey, tennis player, Ebony. You know?
1: No, it had to be. It had to be something that I was interested in because he knew that I was really interested in psychology because I was. At, I would ask a lot of questions. So it was actually between pediatrician and psychologist. Right. And so I was very interested in the psychology class. I would ask a lot of questions and he was like, you're this is this is interesting to you. This is intriguing. So I knew that I always wanted to work with people and help people in some way. I just didn't know in what capacity, but I knew it wouldn't have been firefighting. I knew it wouldn't have been (laughs) um, tennis, but I knew that it was going to be in the service of, of some people in some way. I didn't even know about mental health until I took that psychology course. Wow, and this was in high school. You got to take a course. This psychology was in high school, course. which is not common.
0: No, most that people is not. aren't taking
1: psychology courses in in high school, so I was very privileged in that way. I can't like leave out the fact that I was looking for a way out of my situation. So To me, I was interested in what's going to give me the highest level of likelihood that I'm not going to be in Jackson anymore, because I'm from Jackson, Mississippi. What's going to get me out of this city? What's going to get me out of scarcity and poverty? And what's going to get me money? What's going to get me the highest level where I don't have to answer to people and I have the most control over my life? So I can't miss that part. So when he said, doctor, I was like, okay. And I started to read more, listen more. I majored in psychology as an undergrad. And I was like, well, what's the highest I can go? Because if I leave here now and get a job as a BS level psychology student, I won't have a lot of autonomy. I won't have a lot of money. I won't have a lot of chance to get out of where I'm from. So I said, I need to go get a doctorate. And so that was getting a doctorate at that point then became non-negotiable for me because that was my way out. And education has always been my way out. So I'm really interested in this.
0: One, I love that in your situation, that was what worked, right? It sounds like Mm -hmm. you made it. You did it. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) But I also
0: know from working in communities of color, there's such a huge stigma against what you're describing. Sometimes it's against education, but more often that mental health stigma. I teach writing classes. Um, My students are predominantly students of color. Many of them have endured life. Mm -hmm. altering trauma. But I would say the vast majority of them have limited or no experience with mental health care. Mm -hmm. So my question, I guess, is twofold. Like, one, how did you transcend that personally? And then how can we help everyone else?
1: Yeah, it didn't happen synonymously. It happened later. All I knew is that I needed to get a degree and get a job. I hadn't bought myself into the idea of receiving mental health care because it wasn't something that was available to me. It wasn't something that was talked about. So even in my undergrad, we didn't have a counseling center. We didn't have a counseling center until I went to my master's program at a predominantly white college. Wow. And I didn't start doing counseling until actually I, I didn't go to counseling myself until actually I graduated from my PhD program. So yes. So all of this it time- They didn't make you like, do it
0: along the way? I always feel like they must make you do it along the way.
1: They make us do a, a simulation of group therapy- So we're in group therapy, but it's a course. Mm -hmm. And you can choose to talk about real issues or you can choose to take on a persona, right? And so it just really is up to you. But it wasn't like you need to go to therapy. I was providing therapy before I actually had therapy myself.
0: Wow. Yeah. How did entering into therapy or did entering into therapy yourself change you as a therapy provider?
1: Astronomically. Significantly, because it, it allowed me to tap into some things that I needed to work on. Because one of the things that I know about myself is I'm an intellect. Like I, I can intellectualize a lot of things. Intellectualizing things has also been something that I know how to do. But it's also been a coping skill. So I can, I can go there and I can regurgitate like academic information or things that I know and knowledge and theory to help somebody else. But that will only take you so far in my experience as a psychologist now. That can only take you so far. The more work I did on myself, the more I was able to reach new depths with my clients. I couldn't reach. And so there's this saying or somebody put up, you can only go as far with your clients as you've gone yourself. And that's true. If I only stick to academic and theory, I can only go that far. But if I'm doing my own internal work and I'm really getting to the crux, like the core of the the stuff that is driving me, motivating me, the things that hide and lurk in the shadows, I can also help take my clients there as well. And I can offer compassion. I can offer kindness. I know what questions to ask. Because those questions have been asked to me. And one of the things that I really love about therapy is that I'm also learning while I'm in therapy. With my therapist now, I'm like, oh, I really like the way she asked that question. Or this is something I need to be asking my clients. Like I have not asked this. So it's also a learning experience too. And so it's almost like consultation in a way. So I'm able to kind of like continue to evolve. And I feel like if I don't go to therapy, then I remain stuck with what I know at that point. And it doesn't really help me or help my clients to the extent that it actually could. This is fascinating. I've never actually thought about how
0: intellect and learning, I always think about learning as like kind of what you're talking about here. Like I went to therapy, I learned the questions they asked, and that shaped me as a learner, as a therapist. But I never thought about the way that intellect helps us distance. If you and I just stay in the smart stuff right now, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we don't have to feel together.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: (laughs) You are blowing my mind. I'm rethinking a whole lot of stuff and choices. If we just stay in the the logic and the reason and the, oh, we don't have
1: to do that other stuff, which is messier. It's messier, but also that's how psychologists and therapists are trained many times. With the whole don't disclose, it's not about you, it's about the client, let the client have the space. It creates that distance that is kind of needed in the profession too. So it's also a reinforcer. But really what I'm finding, that's not always helpful, especially when you're sitting in front of folks who are really hurting and hurting at a deep level. That intellect, that theory, it really creates more of a problem, I think. And we need to feel together. Like during the pandemic, we need to be here together saying, I don't know what's going on. I'm experiencing the same thing you're experiencing. I am stressed because it also shows your humanity and it helps other person, the other person in the room feel like, okay, I'm not by myself here and we're connected more and a person trusts you more. You get to do deeper level work. It just all ends up working together. So I'm not really, a, I don't buy into the idea that therapists don't need to disclose or any of that stuff. I know that's how we're trained, but I don't believe it because it does keep us distance in a way.
0: I think that makes sense. I'm, I'm thinking about as a parent, the, the times when I've tried to be brave and fearless for my kids, like right. super mom. Ah! And yet some of my best parenting moments have been when I've cried, when I've wept yeah. with my kids and said, I'm hurting. Or when I've apologized to my kids and said, mm-hmm. I made a mistake. Or even like you're talking about during the pandemic, when I said to my kids, I'm afraid, too. Mm -hmm. But we're here together in this room with one another, and we're going to do our best to keep each other safe. Those moments of vulnerability when you let that, I don't know, let that barrier down, you'd think that it would be the opposite. You'd think me saying I'm afraid would make them more scared, but Mm -mm. it almost let them see that fear is just part of being human, and it's okay.
1: That's right. And it does wonders if, you know, as a parent, kids can see that, but also if you're a therapist and your client can see that too. I mean, you don't need to make the session about you, but it's real. And especially when you're working with communities of color and you're naming that this stuff is hard. I'm experiencing the same social injustices that you're experiencing. I'm experiencing some of the same oppression. It really does help in that fear that I don't know, like, I. We, there used to be a time where we could use CBT to be like, no, you won't be in your bed asleep at night and somebody comes in your house and shoots you. You won't get shot walking to the mailbox. There used to be a time where we could say that that's not likely, but we can't say that now. So the fact that we can share in this fear together really does kind of allow us to bond in that vulnerability together and allows people to be seen in ways that they may not, may not be seen because we're sticking to some protocol of a gold standard treatment. It's like, no, how that won't happen to you no we really don't know from your perspective do you think some of the stigma
0: that exists is simply because we've had so much broken faith and broken trust between these i mean predominantly white i don't know i'm thinking of of psychologists i can name and there's like four <laughs> and they're all like dead white men so i you know like I, do you think that some of the resistance is simply because we're taking this um white thing and asking Black communities to trust it. And there's really no reason why they should, based on the history in this country— is that where the stigma comes from?
1: Absolutely. A large part of it. I actually just did a talk uh in Boston. It's one of my signature talks that I do. I do a lot of talk around the mental health stigma and where it started. And so talk therapy actually started like from a place for black folks of actually helping us not be delinquents, helping us become model citizens and helping mm. us learn how to be citizens in this in this society, right? So when you have the history of that rooted in mental health it's really hard for that to be taught generationally or for that trust to be passed down generationally, let me say. And so what's being passed down to us is don't talk to them, go here, go to church, pray because these are safer uh paths to take if you want to remain intact with your family if you don't want to be institutionalized if you don't want to be ostracized or sent to prison or overly diagnosed those kinds of things so this is the, these are the avenues we're going to take keep it keep it here keep it tight to the chest go pray about it let that be, let that be between you and God you remain with us, you remain safe. And so the stigma is rooted and wrapped up in all of that. Um, so faith becomes a huge part of of how we heal as Black folks. Um, and I know we're not a monolith, but for a large part of, of our experiences, faith has been a way that we found healing. And for a long time, those two things couldn't exist because of the the ways that we were treated within the system. So I do think that stigma has been passed down. And still today, it happens. Like Just during the pandemic, I had clients tell me that they were talking to therapists who were like, you don't really know all the facts of what happened in that that incident. So you really can't feel that because you don't have all the facts no. yet. And so it's still happening, right? And so you will find, I find people come to me, they said, I tried it, I will never do it again. And you know they're going to go tell other people, therapy doesn't work. <laughs> it's not that something was wrong with that therapist. It's that therapy doesn't work because this was one bad experience that I had that confirms the history of what has happened.
0: Oh, no, that's maddening. And I, I feel like I understand now sometimes my students will write with kind of a guard up and it's it's mm-hmm. this idea that I'm not going to tell tales outside of of my own. That that's that's for us to in my family or in my neighborhood that mm-hmm. we don't we don't speak outside. We keep it here. We keep it close, which I can see would be a barrier. And that reminds me, this is tangential, but it reminds me, I think I heard you speak about this once before, about um, the archetype of the strong Black woman, Mm -hmm. right? This is often Mm -hmm. lobbed about as a compliment, uh, usually in political analysis, to see who delivered Atlanta and the votes, right? The strong Black woman. Um, But that label can be really damaging,
1: can't it? Oh, it definitely is. (laughs) You know, it started out of a, the strong Black woman, Started as a way to combat the other stereotypes that were present. So we had the mammy, the matriarch, the Jezebel, the Sapphire. Those stereotypes served to demean and degrade, dehumanize Black women. And the strong black woman trope was created to say, wait a second, we can do all things. We we are much more than this sex symbol. We are much more than the person who takes care of your kids. We can do all the things, and we can do things that men can do as well. We're independent, like however. Historically, what that has done just over time is created this uh, dehumanization as well as seeing us as more strong than we actually are and that we can actually take on more than we have the ability to. And that doesn't provide us opportunity to take care of ourselves, to rest, to be easy, to be soft, to create a life. That actually feels less difficult and less challenging. Instead, is we have to endure all things and go through all things, and uh, we can get through all things. And it served us at one point, but right now, what we're seeing is that it's not serving us as well as it once did because the times are not the same. Um, and so, while that was a means of survival back then, we don't really need it now, and we can let go of some of that stuff now. And so, it does become a detriment to carry that identity. Still helps us at times, but. It's at our detriment many times. Yeah.
0: I think when you look at, oh, studies in the healthcare profession and in medicine and the way that Black women are, are often their pain is not believed, mm-hmm. that uh, you could see how a strong Black woman label would then negate the care that yeah. that individual needs right now. Mm-hmm. I had never thought about that.
2: conflicted a history podcast is available on spotify apple or wherever else you get your podcasts i hope to see you soon
0: i know that you also in addition to being a uh, a therapist and a clinician, you also specialize in, in a few different things. I've heard you talk on Instagram, for instance, about the dangers of diet culture. Mm-hmm. And I know that mm-hmm. many of us, like, I, I'm an educated adult, but I fall for it. I fall for all of it. I've done oh, all well the, do. you, you name it, the the keto, the Atkins, like I've done all the dumb things. And I mean, I, I can tell you, again, this is like the the logic, right? I can tell you that a glance at the research, will tell you that the vast majority of diets do not work for the vast majority of people. You lose a few pounds now, but a year later, we've gained it back and five pounds more, right? I know this, but we keep making the same mistakes anyway. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about the harms of diet
1: culture and how yeah. in the world to
0: navigate it?
1: Yeah, well, it works. Diets, diet culture works. <laughs> I mean, right? that's, we have bought fully into it. I mean... <sighs> We were born into it. And so it's deeply, deeply ingrained. Our parents were taught it. It just its everywhere we look. So how can you not? So I just want to kind of lead with that. Diet culture works because it plays on our desperation and it plays on the insecurities that they planted. So this is the thing. They create the insecurity and then say, but we have a remedy for it. You're inadequate, but we have a remedy for it. This is why it's a great it's a great market if you want to study marketing if you want to study uh, like how to create a culture that's the one to study. So I got into this actually because of my own weight loss or my own weight body image struggles, as you can imagine. So I was always a heavier child, always a child who was probably larger than the students in my class. Um, and so I've always struggled with this idea that my body wasn't good enough. And it's been reinforced by adults to, you know, who said things about my body, that kind of thing. So I ended up losing all of this weight. And then so after people would ask me, like, how did you lose weight? Tell me, tell me, tell me. So in my little entrepreneur brain, I'm like, I'm gonna start a business around this. I'm gonna become a wellness coach. I'm gonna become a weight loss, but whatever it is I became. And so in 2015, I started a business with my sister where we were helping other black women learn how to take better care of themselves, therefore lose weight. But then as I learned more, I was like, this feels very oppressive to me. And as I read more, one of the books that I read that was pivotal for me was Sabrina Strange's Fearing the Black Body, the um, anti-Black roots of kind of like fat phobia and things like that. And I was like, wow, I can't be a Black woman in this space continuing to be the oppressor that we experience. This doesn't feel authentic to me. This doesn't feel right to me, but I know that this is a passion area of mine. So how do I blend what I know about psychology, mental health, human behavior with this idea of around food and health. And I didn't want to occupy the wellness space because I felt like the wellness space was just diet culture dressed up in another name. So I actually created the term food relationship strategist. I said, I want to talk about our relationship with food. We have a relationship with our hair. We have a relationship with our dress. We have a relationship with so many things. We definitely have a relationship with food. What's that about? I really wanted to understand, teach, educate, explore what is this relationship and how do we build a healthier relationship with it? Because the one that we have now is tainted by these ideals and ru- rules that are rooted in diet culture. So the reason I think that it's harmful diet culture is because I think it's traumatizing. It silences you. It takes away your ability to listen to your body. It ungrounds you. It creates the system. It, it creates sort of chaos for your nervous system. It plants this seed of mistrust, this doubt, this uncertainty, this feeling of being on edge. And if we go back to diet culture, food rules, they do the exact same thing. We're uncertain. We don't know how to listen to our bodies. We feel anxiety when we show up with food in any setting. We feel un- we feel like we're ungrounded, we're not grounded. We're uh, unnerved like we are- our systems are out of whack. So when we do these things we're experiencing some of the same trauma responses that we're experiencing when we engage with a catastrophic event. And so the reason that I think that it's harmful is because it creates this adverse response in us that almost kind of is visceral in a way like, oh, no, we're apologizing. We're over apologizing. And we then begin to navigate life out of this place of I'm a bad human because of the bad body that I live in, because of the bad food choices that I make. There are so many cultural
0: indicators, and I think I've heard you address this as well, that. You know, I was raised with an Italian grandma who handmade pasta and kneaded bread and simmered sauce on the stove and that that food and family and love became my understanding of what food and family and love meant. I know other communities have tortillas and they have rice and they have macaroni and and um what happens when our cultural backgrounds bump up against the diet industrial complex and tells us carbs are evil is my entire relationship with my family evil? I've
1: never thought about this before. Yeah, and diet culture actually wipes away a lot of our cultural foundations around food. They tell us that the very things that mean something to us, that that means family, that means bonding is actually bad for you. Don't eat the bread, don't eat the pasta. That's actually bad for you. What are you doing? You don't love yourself enough, which also creates distance from the family. Distance from the thing that you're bonded to, which creates uncertainty and an over-reliance on them is very much like a human abuser. Oh, your family doesn't love you. They don't care about you. I'm the only one who cares about you, and I'm the only one who has the solutions for you. So the more distance you become from your family, the more control they can have over you and the more influence they can have. Diet culture is is the same. The more I get you to buy into what I'm telling you, the more reliant you become. On me, the more I tell you that your tamales are wrong, the more I tell you that your greens are bad for you, but you can also eat kale. Don't eat greens, but eat don't eat collard greens, eat kale. It's the same thing. And they're the same thing. But collard greens, we know in the South, I'm from Mississippi, collard greens, that's what we eat. Collard greens with some ham hocks in them, that's what we eat, but that's bad. But you can eat this kale with this MTC oil or put some coconut oil in it. Believe me, and I influence you turn your back on what is cultural and foundational to you and you lose the thing that ties you to your values, ties you to your identity, and you become reliant and you really become a person who's lost. And so you don't know which way to go. And so you're going to keep buying into my method because I'm going to keep selling you the solution to the issue that I created in you. And that is what happens. And I can't name a cultural food that diet culture has not said was bad. No, I'm just thinking of all the Foods with the X's through them. Yes, don't eat this, don't eat this, eat all of the things. And so you really have to, and so the reason I love that book by Sabrina Strings is it talks about the anti-Blackness of it all. Anti-Blackness affects everybody, everyone. And so if you are a person who's saying, oh, that's not, that's not, that's not going to be me. The, The minute they take away foods that are rooted in Blackness, they're coming for the other foods as well. And every other food is fair game. And so you we have to understand that the racism that is in, deeply embedded in diet culture um impacts all of us. And the people who are impacted the most are white women. White women get dragged through the mud with diet culture. And if they become the face of eating disorders, white women become the face of of poor relationships, well, Black people, poor relationships with food because of diabetes and the disease, but the thinness, the thing that you did to become anorexic is just so bad. The thing that you're doing around eating disorders and bulimia and purging is just so bad. When the issue was created by diet culture for... Us to meet a standard of white European womanness or just European, like just European image. But even white women themselves can't fit within the image that is upheld in diet culture. So the reason I say that it's worse for them is because they're trying to fit something that was created for them that they will never meet. It's an impossible. It's a complete impossible. And they then, and even in mental health, become the representation that we see around eating disorders. And they're not the only people experiencing eating disorders. We are too. But we're not the face because it doesn't center us, and we're not kind of made to to kind of matter in this way.
0: So what do we do, Dr. Ebony? How can we have a healthier relationship with food when we live inside a
1: culture and a system that doesn't really want us to? Yeah, it doesn't want anybody. To, live in it, to be honest, I really think that we've got to do things like this. We've got to have honest conversations about the harm that has been done. But here's the thing, to, to admit that harm has been done, ha- you have to admit that you've been wrong about a lot of things. And a lot of people can't sit with the idea of saying, I'm wrong. I was wrong about this. This is the truth. But once we can tell the truth about the harms of diet culture and have these very real conversations, we might slowly stop buying into the diet culture rhetoric and diet culture rules. And we can begin to say, you know what, it's actually not unhealthy to be fat actually, I'm not a bad person if my body becomes fat. Actually, I can still be an athlete and live in a fat body. Or actually, I'm not healthy because I'm skinny. So these are the truths that I'm saying that people will have to grapple with. But to grapple with that means that you have to stop believing that obesity and fatness is inevitable and that you're going to die. So I tell people, if you want to start building a healthy relationship with food, really start small and just interrogate how the rules show up in your life. What rules have you been operating under that you know aren't serving you? And try to just start changing those. To change a system while we still live in it is very, very hard as we can see. So you have to do the thing that you can control. Say yes to some things sometimes. If you wanna have a slice of pizza, say yes sometimes. See how that feels for you. See if you can sit with the anxiety, work through the guilt, work through the shame. See whose voice you're listening to when that shame comes up. If you need to say no to some things, sometimes say no and see how that feels. Sometimes you need to say no to an extra slice of pizza if it's going to give you acid reflux or if it's going to cause you to have stomach issues or if you know that your blood pressure is going to spike, all of these things. See what comes up when you put these limits on yourself, either in the yes way or the no way, and work through those emotions. And if you can, just allow yourself to start with something with, okay, I usually say no to an extra a serving. Of a dessert, let me let me see what it would be like to just say yes. What comes up for me? And just start there. Just start there. Cause I guarantee you some message around diet culture is gonna come up and it's gonna resonate that. Oh, these are the things that I've been living by for some time now. You're so right in so many
0: ways. And I'm I'm unpacking the times when I've been vulnerable, when I've been most vulnerable to diets. I remember 17 Magazine or Young Miss, one of those had a had a diet in it when I was 13, probably did mm-hmm. my first diet then. Well, what was going on in my 13-year-old brain, there's a whole lot going on that it wasn't the diet that I was looking – I was looking towards a diet to solve problems. But I think when I've been at my most vulnerable, it also had a lot to do with things that were bigger than me, right? Yeah. That, that middle school, that, that entire time is really difficult. And you, sometimes you're, you're using this – this, you know, drop five pounds to to solve these other things, which are much bigger, and they're going to take a little longer.
1: We're all just trying to be good enough, right? We're all trying yeah. to be on the side of rightness and good enoughness, and we use body manipulation to get there. It's really less to do with, like you said, less to do with me not being in shape or anything like this. How do I become good enough? and on the side of rightness and on the side of goodness to where people will see me as worthy and valuable? we've been taught a very quick way to get there. It's just to be in a skinny body. So that's one way we can get there. And we use that and we overuse that and over rely on that particular way of
0: being good enough. Yeah. I'm wanting back some choices I made, but I'm, I'm grateful to be thinking about this. There were three things I wanted to talk about. And this is the third that I recently started using your therapy cards in my classroom. So as a writing teacher, I am tasked with teaching my students how to write thesis-driven, academically-reasoned, evidence-based papers. And I can do Mm -hmm. that. However, um, as we inched our way out of the pandemic and the quarantine restrictions, I noticed that a lot of my students were limping along emotionally, and this was affecting them academically. And I'm teaching the same lessons, but we're, we're struggling with things we didn't used to struggle with. And I used to be the kind of teacher who was like all about the work we're all going to pass this standard and this bar. But I, I brought your, your therapy cards to my, my classroom. And um, so first, would you mind just telling folks about your therapy
1: cards? Yeah, I'm so happy to hear you're using, you're using them. But my therapy cards is a card deck that I created, honestly, to work, you know, work through the barriers that exist for Black folks around cost, stigma, and, uh, access. So having people not able to find a therapist that they can pay for a therapist in their area, also not being able to afford that therapist, even when they find one. So I put the questions that I ask my clients into a card deck. And that's what my therapy cards are. Cause I wanted folks to feel like I have questions that a real psychologist would ask formulated for people who look like me, um, uh, represented in graphics by people who look like me and I can see myself in a field that actually hasn't always represented me in a positive way. So I created them for that. And out of that first edition, the women's deck, came the teen edition and then the men's edition. And we've just kind of like continued to kind of explore ways that we can we can help folks access. A, me- a mental health tool that can allow them to do some work. So that's what My Therapy Cards are, as a way for you to, to just kind of do some inner work on the things that may be coming up for you with regard to mental stuckness, habitual kind of like cycles, and then triggers, coping skills.
0: Well, they're tremendous. So I've actually set aside portions of class time. And sometimes we're talking through a question that I feel like is, you know, for sharing. And other times we're writing through them. I've given the kids you small stacks, I'm like, you know, Pick the one that, that seems easiest to you to answer, and then pick the one that seems like you don't want to answer because it's tricky. And we'll just do it on your page. And it's a conversation between them and with me. You know, and some of them are are like I wrote down a few, just, you know, what positive things help you through tough times. I mean, that's that's stuff that the kids have to be reminded of, you know, and who do you look for to for guidance? And then there was one you asked about social media, how it, it makes you think and feel about yourself. That became such a talking point one day that actually changed one of our papers, we have to write an argumentative paper. It doesn't really matter what the topic is. So I changed it to be about, you know, is social media in general, is it, is it more harmful than helpful or more helpful than harmful? And the kinds of things the kids wrote by being able to bring their vulnerable selves into their academic
1: work. Dr. Ebony, it was
0: beautiful. Thank you so wow. much for this gift.
1: Wow. <laughs> that just like touches me in a way, like every time I'm sitting here, like this is so surreal to me. So you'll have to kind of kind of forgive me. This is so, so surreal that I created the cards for reach and access. But to hear people use them in real time and the impact that they have. Yeah, it, it hits me in a way that leaves me speechless. So thank you for that, um, because I do think we need to be having these conversations. And I do think it's very much like diet culture. I think we need to be critical of the systems that are at play and how they're impacting us because the earlier we can become critical thinkers around what is happening, we can become more independent thinkers around how we're going to allow this to show up in our lives and how we're going to use it. So the fact that you're working with students who are now like, okay, social media is helpful and harmful. Let me think about this a minute. It's not just something that is cool. Like This thing is a real, real machine and how do I want to engage with it? blows my mind because it's so influential. Yeah. And just letting the kids
0: feel they had some power around it. Again, they wrote academically, but they also filled the board with lists and it was a great conversation. It all came because one of your cards was on somebody's desk. Um, I also have the adult ones. I I carry them in my purse. My my kids laugh at me, but I I keep the cards in my purse and I pull them out in, in random situations to just when you feel like you're stuck in one of those adult where you just, there's like those seven things adults talk about, and you just, you can't get past it to get to the more meaningful thing. And I, it's funny, I was thinking, I call them, hey, I have these conversation cards with me. Do you want to do one? I don't call them therapy cards. I'm thinking about my own mental health stigma right there. (laughs) Um, But I found that they're just a way to increase relationship. You know, we were all without So much relationship opportunity for the years that we spent inside or away from each other. I don't want to waste as
1: much time. I don't want to be Mm -hmm. with people and not be with them. One of the things I want your listeners to kind of check themselves on, too, is what conversations are you actually having? This kind of triggered this thought for me around food relationship stuff. I encourage you to find some other things to talk about. That are more meaningful and that does not center your flaws or that doesn't center your inadequacies, but that could really unveil themselves to like work that you can actually do that you can actually improve in a meaningful way. And I love that you're using the cards to generate those conversations because it gives us some time, it gives us things that we can feel the space with when we're wanting to deviate from those mundane conversations that actually continue to make us feel bad about ourselves.
0: Yeah, and not letting
1: us, if you and I
0: gather, that's the least. The least useful thing that we could probably be talking about right now is whether I think you look some kind of way. I had to go to a, a writing training over the summer that I was kind of, eh, I was, I was on the fence about it. But I tell you what, when we brought out the cards, it became like a game and a, a time of really connecting, in some cases, with strangers I barely knew mm. who were telling me beautiful, trusting this space with their vulnerability and and memories. It just was such a great way to grow in community with people.
1: Mm-hmm. I love that. And and this is exactly what I wanted to happen. I wanted community. I wanted bonding. I wanted a deeper understanding of ourselves, but also of each other. That's why the cards were created to use alone. Therapists use them with their clients, or we can use them in community with each other. I know you do plenty of interviews and you, you talk for
0: a living half the time. And so um, I know you would asked a lot of the same questions. So I always try to end conversations with, sort of playful things. These are my yeah. therapy cards um, to help us learn more about you that maybe is a little bit off the beaten path. So these first these first batch of questions are just like multiple choice. You pick one. So um, coffee or tea? Coffee. I used to be a tea person. You, you, you converted. Gotcha. Mountains or beach? Beach. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Early bird or night owl? Night owl. Are you a risk taker or are you the person who always knows where the band-aids are?
1: I'm in the middle. I'm a little bit of both. These are fill in the blanks.
0: If I wasn't working as a therapist, I would be a
1: cosmetologist. I'd be doing hair. Really? Really. Oh. I almost went to cosmetology school. Yeah.
0: Wow. What made you change? I've had a lot of folks who do my hair <laughs> say they're actually very similar. Now, I'm not sure that you would say mm-hmm. that, but that you sit and you listen and you, and
1: people tell you stuff when they're in that chair.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: And I grew up in a hair salon. My aunt is a hairstylist and she she taught us how to do hair. And I I love it. It's creative. And so it allows me to tap into my creativity. And so I would be doing that for sure. That's excellent. All right. This is
0: another um, fill in the blank. So what is something quirky that people don't often know about you? It might be a like. It could be a love. It could be a pet peeve. I don't know. What is something that people don't know about (laughs) Instagram Dr. Ebony?
1: I don't like people. I don't like talking to people. <laughs> <laughs> what? I don't really like people. <laughs> so here's the, I know. here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, Anne Marie. <laughs> I love people, but I don't like talking to people and meeting new people because it makes me so nervous and anxious. So when I get on a plane, everybody thinks I'm an extrovert. I'm working on this in therapy, too. Everybody thinks I'm an extrovert. But here's the thing. When I'm on, I'm on. Mm -hmm. Right. So I get on a plane. I wear hoodies on planes. And so I wear a jacket. I wear hoodies, and I get and I buy the window seat every single time. So I get on a plane, and I, before it, I, I get on first, before anybody sits down, I turn my head towards the window, <laughs> so I don't have to talk to people, and nobody. I think talks I to saw me.
0: you once. <laughs> I think I sat in your row.
1: Oh my goodness! You'll never know. <laughs> oh my goodness! I because I it, it makes me anxious, and so I'm, what my therapist helped me uncover, she was like, "It's not that you're not an extrovert." I am actually just really uh, anxious about what people are going to think about me. So I avoid conversations and meeting new people because I'm left with that. What did they think? Did they think that I was crazy? Did I say too much? Did I act weird? Was I awkward? Those kinds of things make me shy away from meeting new people. So I tell people, you would think that I, I would go to the party and I'm like, hey, you, hey, you. That's not me. I'm sitting in the back in the corner. Um I'm first off, what people think about
0: you, I'll just let you know is that you're wonderful. That's what they're thinking. <laughs> well, That's you. what they're thinking. <laughs> so, I but I do love knowing that. Oh, okay. What's one of your what's one of your go-to songs? It could be your favorite song or just like that corny song you listen to to get pumped up. What's a go-to song? Whitney Houston, I want to dance with somebody. Right? Love it. Oh, yeah. Love <laughs> I could see her. I could see the video with the the, the dresses and the oh yes, moment yes. for Whitney. Oh.
1: Yes, love it, love it. Uh, what's a favorite book or movie or both? Mm-hmm. My favorite movie is What's Love Got to Do with It? Ironically, um, <laughs> Tina Turner. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> another another great diva. Um, and then what's a favorite ice cream? Oh, I'm not an ice cream person, but if I had to choose, it would be vanilla bean. What if you did have a dessert? What would you prefer to ice cream? Bread pudding. Oh. That is delicious. And then last one, if we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something that you love, what would we see you doing?
1: You'd probably see me traveling. I'd be somewhere, uh, probably in somebody's restaurant. That's what I like to do when I travel. Uh, I'd be eating drinking. That's what I'd be doing. You know, I'm so
0: glad traveling is coming back. I missed traveling. I'm so glad. Yeah, I missed it. Yeah. Well, Dr. Ebony, thank you so much for being here today. It was such an honor to meet you.
1: Yeah, so good to meet you. These are great questions. I really like this end part. <laughs> I like all of them. I really like the end part because it know. makes me tap into some things that I really don't give space to all the time.
0: Yeah, no, I know. It's funny. I We get people who write in and they're always, I, I would say more than, like far more than half the comments are always about like the last, the last questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I always wonder like, what if we put them at the front? Would people answer different? I think they
1: might, you know, because we. I think they would answer differently. I think they would. I like them at the end. I think yeah. that it kind of like closes out like some, a lot of the thinking that has happened to just like, I just want to like mindlessly think about some things. I love that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Folks, Dr. Ebony is a licensed psychologist, a food relationship strategist, a speaker, a consultant, a trauma expert, the creator of my therapy cards. We will put links to all her stuff um, on our show notes page, but please consider how you can show up more fully for yourself, um, how you can be an advocate for your own mental health care. And know there are resources out there and there are wonderful people like Dr. Ebony who um, are out there to help. So uh, to everyone here, we are wishing you love and light wherever this day takes you. Be good to yourself, be good to one another and we'll see you again soon on this Wild and Precious Journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers, Gerardo Orlando and Michael DiAloya. Producer, Sarah Wilgroup And audio engineer, Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey.